Back in the fall of 2020, two hackers started a message thread. They had their fingers on the keyboard set to launch a wave of ransomware attacks against some 400 hospitals in the U.S. and Britain. And it caused a bit of a panic. And developing right now at noon, we are learning about a credible cyber threat targeting healthcare systems. Now we have Russian criminal hackers from Moscow and St. Petersburg freezing the computer systems at our hospitals. In order to demand millions of dollars in ransom payments. The hackers were members of a ruthless cyber game that goes by the name Conti. And they are what's known in hacking circles as big game hunters. They target single high-value targets, lock up their data, and exact huge ransoms. Among other things, before they take systems hostage, they steal important information, like customer data. And then, if people don't want to pay up, they threaten to release it. They have a special blog where they post it. Everything changed for them in February. That's when the group took a stand on the Russian invasion in Ukraine. It said it supported Moscow. Just a day or two later, a new account appeared on Twitter calling itself ContiLeaks, and it provided a leak to something extraordinary, tens of thousands of the group's internal messages or chat logs. I called this like the, the Panama Papers of ransomware because I think there's a, a case study to be done for many years. The Panama Papers provided an inside look at how the super-rich set up offshore accounts. The Conti leaks are the ransomware equivalent because they provide everything from mundane details of day-to-day -day operations to whether the group is linked to the Kremlin. I'm Dina Tupple-Rastin, and this is Click Here. Today, the leak everyone in the cyber world is obsessing about. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. It all began with a short post on Twitter. We're using a little AI voice to read it to you. Greetings. Here is a friendly heads up that the country again has lost its shit. There was a link. The link will take you to download. One click, and anyone could download more than a year's worth of the group's internal chat messages. We promise it is very interesting. Needless to say, lots of people clicked and downloaded. Including this guy, Emilio Gonzalez. He's from Canada. Well, how it happened, I was just browsing Twitter and I saw someone um, posting about uh, the Conti leak and I thought it was pretty cool and I, I wanted to, to get my, I, my hands on it. Gonzalez is a security analyst in Canada. 
He works for a financial company and defends its computer networks from ransomware actors like Conti. He's talking to us from his home office, swinging back and forth in one of those big ergonomic chairs that gamers have. His fingernails are painted black. He says he stumbled onto the chat logs by accident, and he finds himself sneaking moments to read through them. I've done that for, what, I think three days now. Uh, I have a day job, so I only do it on the uh, during lunch and the... Um, uh, the evening, but... Uh, what has surprised him is how much he identifies with these Conti hackers. And they do seem to be just like us, asking for paid leave, sharing office gossip, enduring difficult bosses. Consider the case of the hacker who went by the name Target. Turns out, he's a bit of a jerk boss. He's one of those guys who shows he's impatient by sending one-word emails in succession, like, where are you? The Saturday before the hospital attacks we talked about before, he put out an all-call in the chats, not a request for help, a demand. Everyone is working today, he declared. No explanation, no apologies. We've all had bosses like that. And Gonzalez says after reading all their chat messages, he couldn't help but identify with them. They want to connect with people and they want to, they want to live their life even if they're uh, uh, what we consider bad guys. I always assumed that these ransomware groups were kind of a big volunteer coalition or collective, and that people didn't join ransomware groups so much as temporarily associate with them, sort of like contract workers. I figured hackers wanted it that way, so they could be let loose on the world and create chaos. I assumed they didn't like structure. But the Conti leaks suggest something else entirely. We clearly see a hierarchy of, um, of workers. So you, you have the boss, you have team leads, and there are different teams that work together and uh, uh, chit-chat be- between the, the colleagues. I have a, a message right there. I'm going to try to find it. He has the chat logs up on his computer screen. So uh, one of the first things I saw was that uh, was employees uh, of Conti requesting days off the job. So... Uh... <laughs> The group has more than 100 salaried workers on staff. They have middle managers like Target, the hacker we told you about before. They have worker B programmers who write malicious code that makes ransomware work. There's an IT team that maintains their servers, backs up their data, and can quickly break it all down, disconnect things essentially, if it looks like the authorities are on to them. There are other things that would surprise you about Conti. For one, Gonzalez says in his very French-Canadian way, from what he's seen, some of the code they use to, say, store encrypted data isn't all that great. So I have a computer science background, so I know how to program, and uh, this is not, uh, this is not like, uh, how can I say it uh, respectfully, world-class code. Which makes you wonder, what else isn't quite right about Conti? How could such a sophisticated hacking group not encrypt their chats? Isn't that just standard practice? Particularly if you're a secret hacker? To answer that question, we decided to turn to someone who's all about secrecy, someone associated with the hacktivist collective, Anonymous. Is that a dumb question? I don't think that's a dumb question at all. The dumb part of this is the way they did it in an unencrypted manner. That's unthinkable. Right? This is Discordian, a kind of spokesperson for Anonymous. I make those uh, videos with the text-to-speech voices and the anonymous imagery. 
You've probably heard some of his work. They sound like something out of Mr. Robot. Greetings, citizens of the world. This is a message to Vladimir Putin from Anonymous. Members I write the press releases for those videos. Anonymous, to stay anonymous, you could say, is all about operational security. So Discordian is dumbfounded by Conti's inattention to it. They must be shaking in their boots right now because a lot of their identities will be revealed through these leaks. Um, a lot of the way they do their operations is going to be exposed. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to be them at the moment. What's crazy about all of this is that the leak seems to have taken a page from Conti's own playbook. Remember, one of the ways the group pressures people to pay ransom is by stealing information and threatening to leak it. Companies that encrypt their information can't be extorted that way. And in Conti's case, if this ultra-sophisticated hacker group had just done the most basic thing, encrypt its chats, we wouldn't be talking about the Conti leaks at all. They probably wouldn't have happened. John Falker has been tracking Conti and its predecessor, Ryuk, for years. He's the head of investigations at Trellix, a cybersecurity company. And he used to be part of the national high-tech crime team in the Netherlands. And uh, we conducted multiple uh, uh, ransomware investigations, and that kind of flowed through. And uh, within the work I do now, we follow all the major groups, and Conti was one. That he was and his team of intelligence analysts are combing through these Conti logs. And he says that there are lots of interesting things in there. You could see um, very interesting conversations that they talk about, nicknames that we've seen before in other ransomware groups. Um, we see passwords. They are connecting the dots. And two of these dots involve new indications that Conti has some weird ties to Russian law enforcement and maybe even the government. The group denies it. Moscow does too. But Falker says thanks to the Conti leaks. It's become pretty clear now. Consider one of the chat log exchanges in which Two Conti hackers are talking about a source inside Bellingcat. That's the Netherlands-based investigative journalism group. They focus on fact-checking and open-source intelligence. And the hackers seem to be searching the Bellingcat network for someone else. And what really stood out was the conversation that took place, that they said, like, okay, this is very interesting information. We need to save this. And um, they literally said, okay, save this as uh, look for stuff that's um, related to Navalny. Alexei Navalny is a jailed Russian opposition leader who, to put it mildly, is Putin's nemesis. Okay. In 2020, after surviving an assassination attempt, Navalny worked with Bellingcat to identify his would-be killers. This is audio from one of those assassins, and he actually confesses to the operation over the phone. The chat show Conti members talking about wanting to grab anything related to Navalny in the Bellingcat network. And you don't have to have that suspicious a mind to think that's an interesting coincidence. They literally said, okay, save this as uh, look for stuff that's um, related to Navalny and save it in a folder, uh, Navalny FSB. FSB, Russia's Federal Security Service. It does counterintelligence and internal security. So this basically confirms a lot of what we always been suspecting. Obviously, we don't know if they were actually guided by a state, but it could indicate like, okay, looking at this, there might've been a relationship or they, uh, they were already on the radar and this is their way of continuing operation. So it stayed allowed, as you might call. 
But this also, for me, finding things like this, these little links, uh, puts their claim, what they did just before the leaks, where they said, oh, we choose affiliation with the Russian Federation and this one, puts that in a clear daylight. Hacking groups don't usually take sides in international disputes for a very simple reason. It gets in the way of making money, which is why Conti's declaration of support for Russia struck people as so odd. Falker says no one's exactly sure why Conti did it, but it could have something to do with its relationship with Russian authorities. They talk about people have to lay low because they might be on a list from law enforcement. It, it, it seems like a day-to-day -day business where they try to, okay, we just need to, to lay low and uh, we do our thing and, and okay, then if you lay low for a little bit, then you can continue on later. So it really seemed that they were getting some level of protection. And maybe getting tipped off to avoid an arrest. Cybersecurity officials have long thought hacking groups and Russian authorities have been in a marriage of convenience. The Conti leaks provide a glimpse into how that might work. Sometimes the truth is more amazing than what we could think of, but for now this is the running hypothesis that there is some level of interaction has taken place. And how tight that interaction is, how close that relationship is, I, I, I don't know. We have to see. What's so extraordinary about the Conti leaks is that the messages allow us to examine the group at close range and in real time, with all its eccentricities and personalities. In the past, the information we got from these groups came in snippets when someone got arrested. This gives us a peek inside Conti when the hackers' guards are down, when they're just going about their daily lives. Where are they going to buy or rent the hacking tools they need? Did the ransomware victim pay up? Who's getting paid what? You know, normal office chatter. But as interesting as all this normalcy is, the chats also do something else, something far more worrying for Conti. They provide law enforcement all over the world with tens of thousands of leads. Do you think this is the end of Conti? Maybe it is the end of Conti in the fashion that we know. Uh, but mind you, there's a big difference between um, being outed or being doxxed being identified, being indicted, and being arrested. So there's a big difference. And within that space, there's still room for um, setting up a new ransomware version. A kind of son of Conti, or Conti II. As long as these people are still not arrested, they can still commit the same crime. The skill doesn't fade in that regard, and they can still regroup somewhere else. Which brings us to the unintended consequences of the leak the way ransomware gangs are likely to react. Falker expects the groups will borrow from Al-Qaeda in the terrorism model. Instead of being a cohesive army, they could turn into more independent cells, which are much harder to track. I would not be surprised, long story short, that this whole eco-climate of ransomware becomes more fluid and there's more self-sustained groups that will work uh, less in a hierarchy, as we saw with Conti, but more on a network type of basis. I, I, I would not be surprised if you see something like that. More chats came out in early March, revealing some messages that had been written only days before. It appears Conti has started dismantling all its botnet farms, and it's cleaning out their servers. And, we now know, they have a department for that. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here. We'll be right back.
politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is Click Here. Welcome back. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has unfolded like an old-fashioned kinetic war. All cluster bombs, fires, shattered glass, and tears. Information wars have always been a bit quieter. A shaving of the truth here, an exaggeration there. And Russia has always been particularly adept at weaponizing that old adage that a lie is halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. But here's the surprise. In this conflict, lies aren't moving as fast as they used to. And some think that may be because there's a concerted effort to slow them down. Western officials are preempting Russia's misinformation campaign with intelligence. Welcome to a new Click Here feature we call Three Questions. The idea behind it is simple. We talk to smart people who are thinking about cyber and intelligence in new ways and then have them explain how it's shaping our world. Today's guest is Stanford's Amy Ziegart. She's the author of Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. For decades, Ziegart has been researching American intelligence agencies. And since Russia's 2016 election interference, she's noticed a shift in the way the U.S. approaches information warfare. That was a sort of a harbinger of how is technology fundamentally reshaping the threat landscape, the ability of intelligence agencies to understand it, and who is a customer that needs intelligence. So this is something that has been really interesting, is that as Russia was trying to sort of gin up a misinformation campaign, the Biden administration did something really unusual in releasing intelligence to kind of short-circuit the misinformation campaign. Were you surprised that they did that? I was surprised and I think impressed that they did. I think there are really three different aims or effects of that strategy. The first is inoculation. The Russians are pros at deception operations, and they usually win, or they often win, because once people believe a falsehood, it's really hard to get them to change their beliefs. And so which one gets out first actually really matters. So I think part of the strategy has been, let's inform the world that they're about to be conned by Vladimir Putin. The second goal, Zygart says, is friction. The more Putin is put on his back foot, the harder it is for him to stir up trouble elsewhere. And then the third goal, I think, could be what I call sort of covert action in reverse. The world can't stand on the sidelines hiding behind a fig leaf of his false narrative, right? It makes it much harder when all this information is in the public for other countries to stand on the sidelines. They have to take a side. So I think it's all three of those things playing out. Well, you know, and the excuse has always been that there was a sources and methods problem, right? So how did they get that through this time where there weren't, you know, people shrieking, sources and methods, we can't let this out. They'll figure out how we know this. You know, if I were a gambling woman, I would bet that there were people shrieking, we can't let this out, right? I'm sure there were some interesting conversations inside the administration. But clearly there was a risk-reward assessment. If ever you're going to use intelligence to try to prevent something bad from happening, wouldn't it be the largest territorial aggression in Europe since World War II? 
And so I think that we have to be more forward-leaning at using intelligence, not just holding on to those collection streams. So do you think that this release of intelligence worked? Do you think that we have maybe found one way to deal with misinformation? So it's such a question, how do we define success with this strategy? Well, success, I think, shouldn't be preventing Putin from invading, right? He did invade. That doesn't mean the strategy was misguided. But I think there's a real glimmer of hope in the use of this strategy to combat deliberate disinformation operations online. It's taking advantage of the time dimension. I think a lot of policies don't take enough advantage of what we should speed up and what we should slow down. And so when you give truth the chance to get out first, I think that's a very promising strategy in this information age. That was Amy Ziegart. She's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. She's also the author of the new book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Here are the big cyber and intelligence stories of the week. As on-the-ground fighting intensifies in Ukraine, there's a new volunteer force taking the fight into cyberspace. The Ukrainian government calls it its IT army. A top Ukrainian cybersecurity official, Viktor Shura, says hundreds of thousands have enlisted in their ranks. Ukrainians all over the globe are united to defend our country in the cyberspace. And uh, I know that uh, Russians think that only super countries, super states can provide these attacks. But as we see, more than 400,000 people are united in this IT uh, army. Just how effective these volunteers are is unclear. Russian government websites have been under a huge number of DDoS attacks, but they've been able to recover from them. Analysts are a little worried that this cyber call to arms violates international norms. The Defense Department's chief information officer, John Sherman, told the record in an interview that in anticipation of possible cyber attacks from Russia, he's in daily contact with U.S. Cyber Command and NSA Chief General Paul Nakasone. While he wouldn't talk about the discrete steps the U.S. is taking to guard against those attacks, he said he's working with combatant commands to make sure America's most sensitive networks are being taken care of in a proactive way. He says he's tending to that constantly. And finally, the cybersecurity firm Proofpoint has discovered what it says is likely a state-sponsored phishing campaign targeting EU officials dealing with the refugee crisis in Ukraine. Proofpoint says hackers may have compromised a Ukrainian armed forces email account in order to target EU officials managing logistics for the refugees. The email pretended to be about information about a UN Security Council decision, and when opened, planted Sunseed malware. Proofpoint linked the attack to a group known as Ghostwriter, and they're thought to be linked to Belarus. Today's episode was produced by Sean Powers and Will Jarvis. It was edited by Karen Duffin. Ben Levinson composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record Media, and we'd want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us at 
clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.